Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fulhamish Podcast. This is your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name is Jack Collins and I'll be your host today as we take a look back at what was an ultimately unsuccessful trip to North London for the second time in a row. The West London boys headed north and came home with a 2-1 defeat and zero points. But at least we don't have to go back to North London this season. There is silver linings to every cloud. We're going to be looking back at that game against Tottenham and taking some of your questions as well. Joining me today to take that look, Mr. Farrell Monk. How you doing, mate? I'm good, mate. I feel like that you and Dom have finally agreed on something, which is that North London sucks. <laughs> well, I feel like I feel like I'm going to get some backlash of this pod <laughs> because I, I'm sitting here looking at two North London boys in the top of my <laughs> yeah. screen. And one of them is this Daniel Kirk. How you doing, Dan? Uh, I was doing all right until you started slacking off North London. <laughs> <laughs> Look, mate, some of us are West born and bred. It's uh, one of those, right? Uh, and making his debut on the podcast day, a big Flemish welcome to the man who writes our player ratings this season, it's Mr. George Rossiter. How you doing, mate? I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Not too bad. I actually say it's your debut. It's not quite, is it? Because back in 2016-17, George, I think you were the first ever caller into a Fulhamish phone-in. The OG, that's what you're saying. Yeah, one of one of the actual <laughs> original pod squad. It's just been a long, long time since we've had you on the microphone. Yeah, but welcome to the party. Welcome back to the party, mate. It's really, Thank really you. good to have you. Um, and I've been loving the player ratings this season. So congratulations on those. Let's get into this game. And Farrell, can start us off with some three-word reviews. Yeah, of course. Uh, so starting off, uh, a nice classic Um one from Fulham transfers won't define season, which I quite like about the Premier League, that you can lose some games and still feel pretty okay about them. Uh, there was a lot of um, Anthony Robinson-related ones. Uh, so uh, Putney, Putney Perspect with no Jedi backup. Um, DJ H's We Missed Robinson. Uh, James, Connors, James Connors needed a Padawan. Uh, Rick Cardis back again with a with a good one. Jedi Fallen Order. Kieran McGinley's White Heart Pain, which uh, is a nice little throwback Very there. Very good. And I'll finish off with Ash Fisher Wolford's Leno Saves Drubbing. Mm, very, very much true. Very much true. Let's have a look at this in some detail. But actually, before we go into it and the, and the minutiae of it, Dan, what are your kind of overall thoughts on this one? Yeah, I was, I was a bit surprised, really, actually, because I went into this game thinking we might end up looking like Forest, which is looking like a good side, ultimately coming away with no points, but coming out with a lot of credit. And we've sort of looked like a poor side yesterday, come away with no points, but also still come out with a fair amount of credit for sort of the more the grit and the determination, the last ditch defending, and also just trying to keep ourselves in the game whilst comfortably, I mean, for large parts of it being second best. So it's sort of a weird feeling, but I guess it's a positive one because... We look at some of our, the other loss as well against Arsenal is the overarching thing I've seen a lot of people saying is two years ago and again, again, four years ago, these are games that we might be losing three, four, nothing and coming away pretty downhearted. And so to be second best in games and to come away with a 2-1 loss and a lot of credit, I think is a testament to how far we've come as a team. 
Yeah, I think that's completely fair. And and George, I think it's going to be one of those years, right? There are going to be tricky games. We're going to be coming up against superior opposition, you know, more than we're used to considering, you know, where we were last season. But that kind of trigger is you have to be competitive in those games. And Fulham were outplayed yesterday for long, long periods, as Dan said, and yet had chances to level the game and, and come out what would have been a smash and grab point. Now, it hasn't come off. But that's going to be important this season, that kind of tenacity and being able to stick around in games where you're being outplayed. Yeah, and I think I think Mark will be smart enough to know that at the moment that consistency in performances is a little bit more important, especially in games where we're not expecting to pick up points. Like after the Chelsea game, we're definitely going to a, um, a more favourable run of fixtures. I say that the league is so high in quality at the moment. I don't know where a favourable run of fixtures is, but... I think when he's played the same 11, sometimes due to a lack of options before deadline day, he was just focusing on just making sure the performances were there. And we've lost two to Arsenal and Tottenham, but they've been narrow defeats. We've not disgraced ourselves. And I don't think we've disgraced ourselves in any game this season. And I think that'll be more pleasing to him than the points on the board. And even then, we're sat in 10th and I think we can be happy with that. Yeah, I think if you'd offered us eight from our first six, Farrell, we would have taken that and, and run with it, considering how tricky some of these fixtures were. Um, but Marco Silva's comments after the game weren't as positive as I've seen him. You know, the, the, after the Arsenal game, I think he said, you know, we came out with a lot of credit, we came out with a lot of fight, we, we played really well and we just weren't able to hang, hang on. He seemed a bit disappointed with the performance. And that's, you know, much as we're talking about things in a positive light, that's also nice to see because he thought that the levels weren't there yesterday. And, you know, as the three-word reviews referenced, without Leno, things could have got a little bit ugly in the mix at points. And, and we were a little bit lucky that Spurs' finishing was wasteful on occasion and that the VAR bailed us out a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at those and, and you want your manager demanding those kind of standards. Yeah, obviously don't go too hard, otherwise you might... Uh have the fate that's befallen Scott Parker very much recently. But yeah, I, I do agree. I think that, it, you know, the the Arsenal result and the Spurs result yesterday are similar, but I don't feel the same. I think Arsenal, we very much gave a very, very good account of ourselves and caused Arsenal a lot of problems without creating too much. Whereas Tottenham yesterday, we were in the game and we were competitive, but you know, it was a little bit too easy for Spurs. That being said, Spurs were, feel like, Spurs were, again, same as Arsenal. I thought that they were opening us up due to very good play rather than Fulham defending badly. And I think that's, and I think that's highlighting the, the exact point that Dan was making earlier that, yeah, two and four years ago, we would have got an absolute drubbing. Um, and I think it just shows the level of quality that Spurs have at their disposal, that they were able to open us up and we were, um, at will but when we did have the ball we just didn't do enough with it we were quite wasteful a lot of the times like when you you know you're looking in comparison I think I saw that Mitrovic only had six completed passes the entire entire 90 minutes yesterday you know that's not good enough at this level I don't think and that's kind of um, reaffirming that point that I you know although we defended quite well um, and Spurs attacked really well, we weren't doing enough going forward. Maybe that's tied legs. Maybe that's the the quality that he has at his disposal. Maybe it's just unfortunate, the fact, um, you know, with a little bit of knock, niggles here and there and knocks and, you know, Robinson going off and probably the only player that goes off with, and we have zero options to, to refill in that position. Um, you know, I think it just highlights all of those things. I think 
the pressure probably is building on Marco a little bit to try and get more points on the board. Um, but I don't think anyone's going to be too disappointed, you know, with the result yesterday. I think part of Marco's disappointment might come from the fact that I think we probably didn't execute the game plan he wanted us to. It was very different to what we've done in every other game this season. So I was having a look and yesterday we completed 396 passes and in all of our other games this season, the most we've completed is 282. And now whilst that may initially sound like a good thing, because you're like, oh, we've completed more passes, that's great. It's not what Marco's been trying to do this season. What he's been trying to do is get the ball forward quickly and into dangerous areas. And this was the tricky thing about playing Spurs is that in general, Spurs have not been allowing teams to play on that sort of transition. In again, you know, they, they did against Forest. They they sat back. They didn't let Forest use that intensity to get at them. And I think that's when Marco was disappointed is that we were just too slow in possession and we didn't execute his game plan, which I think is why he was disappointed. Whereas against Arsenal, we did and we were quick in possession. I think also that uh, um, Spurs found it quite easy to play out of our press, whereas. Um, Arsenal last week, they didn't, you know, we caused them problems high up the pitch. And as a result, we got, you know, we got the goal from it. Whereas, you know, I don't think the Fulham team handled it very well. I think part of it was tactical. I think, I think a part of it that Spurs were very good with the, with their sort of wing backs being able to, to receive the ball and have plenty of options to be able to play in that triangles. What I quite liked, uh, what was quite interesting was the fact that Eric Dyer was playing as a centre back, but, roaming forward to create those nice triangles for the wing back and the centre back to find him when they did have the ball. And when they're off the ball, he just moved straight back into that centre back position. And then they always had that out ball, whether it was Dyer, whether it was Hoiberg, whether it was Romero, to be able to pick that ball up, turn, and then Ryan Sessegnon would be on the far side, completely unmarked, and they always had that outlet. And I think Fulham really, really struggled to be able to to try and contain that. Yeah, and I also think one thing that Farrell mentioned about the intensity of our press early on that has to be mentioned is that this is the same group that have played, especially the front four of Bobby Reed, Cabana, Pereira and Mitrovic. They've played pretty much all the minutes for the last four or five games because until deadline day, we've not had the options off the bench to change that bar, Jay Stansfield. And there are going to be tired legs. The intensity is not going to be the same. Um, and that was probably the biggest difference between this game and the games against Arsenal and Liverpool was how quickly we came out the traps. And I think it's quite easy to um, blame how slowly we started, but I think you've got to understand that the same group have played the same amount of minutes recently. And then hopefully we'll improve that going forward with the likes of James Vinicius and William coming in. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think also this is obviously our first week with a midweek fixture um, where we actually played a full strength team in the midweek and, and obviously we've got a, a massive win over Brighton and ultimately that's the game you target of these three right that's to get Brighton at home out of these three fixtures in the last eight days is the game that gets targeted four points and we've come through and, and, and delivered that and you know I've kind of said it from the top if we can stay above a point per game across the course of this season I think we'll stay up you know I, I think 38 will be enough and ultimately there's three games there if you can win one of them and, and you can you can almost not afford to because I think it's probably the wrong way of putting it but it gives you a little bit of leeway in the other games against bigger teams you're away from home and, and the task is always going to be tougher I'm, I'm going to come on to this first half and, and Dan I think it was interesting in terms of Yes, it was a slow start, as George says. But equally, you know, this is as good as I've seen Tottenham 
this season, uh, including that 4-1 win over Southampton on the opening day. And, and I've heard the same sentiment from quite a lot of Spurs fans. It just felt like they clicked into gear. And, you know, that kind of roaming you know, central defender, as Farrell pointed out, Eric Dyer moved it, moved into there. At one point, Christian Romero was playing as a false eight, um, which is, which is not a term you use very often. Um, but he was just sort of marauding around in our midfield. And it looked like their system got the better of us in the first half. And I haven't seen that yet this season. Yeah, I, I think system is a big point here. I think one of the things I kept noticing was across the pitch, the, the, the numerical advantages they had. You know, and that's not just in sort of the moments when they were overloading us out wide. It was just that they were very smart. And I mean, this is sort of the things you expect from a, from a Conte side, I guess, is that he's they're using the space well and they're making sure that they're not getting outnumbered in possession or out of possession. And so there were so often, as Farrell was saying, when it looked like, right, this is when we trigger our press. This is when we try and make it difficult for them. And suddenly three, four lovely little short quick passes just played around that and it was tough because I was just stood there I was, I was with my dad at the game and the number of times yesterday I just said oh that's really good football yeah and yeah, it yeah. just was you're, you're just just looking at it you're like they're, they're just playing very well and then again I mean it, we've said it but it comes back to the you know credit to us we've come again up against a team on their best day so far this season and limited them to a narrow victory so despite all of that staying on top sort of keeping ourselves in that game and riding these blows and sort of wearing them was it was it was admirable yeah I mean and, and it brings us on to the first goal and, and obviously the big changing point in the game is Anthony Robinson going off Farrell, we're going to talk about Robinson's injury and and you know the potential of that that has on the on the next couple of games in in, in the later segment of this podcast but Obviously, Mbappé comes on. He's a right-footed player playing originally a left wing back. It looked like a slight change of system um, in order to try and accommodate him a little bit further forward. He gets himself into trouble, tries to play out. It doesn't work. And Spurs, having squandered some you know, very presentable chances earlier in the, in the game, finally get the breakthrough. And it's not, you know, we're saying this at half time. It's not the fact that Fulham went into the break one nil down because Spurs were, you know, very much the better team in that first half. They were in the ascendancy for almost all of it. Um, it's the fact that after defending heroically for 40 minutes, we've given the ball away in a dangerous area and been punished for it. And it all felt very, very avoidable. Yeah. Um, I don't think Marco Silva was probably prepared for how slow a start that Mbabu was going to have on that left-hand side. Um, I don't know if Kevin Mbabu has ever played left-back before. He I haven't has, been he has his... but sparingly. Yeah, and it's difficult to come into that situation. He doesn't have a... You know, he's, he's now got some minutes under his belt, but, like, to come into that situation against against a Spurs team who were pretty dominant against us for the, for the 90, um, you know, I think that there were other options available that might have, you know, in hindsight, might have suited a bit better. You know, you've got you've got the the utility man and Bobby Reed who probably could have done a job and with a change of system at one of the wing back positions and done a very good job. Um, he probably wouldn't have liked it, but you know that's he's you know Marco's the manager and you know uh, you know could have could have had the system put in another uh, put in Issa D up there and and made it into a three, um, and you know jiggled things around a little bit there again probably using Bobby Reed as one of the wing back positions. Um, but yeah, um, and the thing is though, it was only a matter of time I kind of felt and, you know, it, again, it was just lovely play from Hoiberg to find some, 
space in a very tight, compacted area like the surprising concourse at, at the wonderful Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And, you know, I tried to like look at this goal again and try and see if there are any sort of small mistakes or anything that we could have done better. And actually, it's just a really well-taken goal. It's almost comes back. It comes back to him so quickly and he's got a shot off in a flash. Um, I think Tosin tries to sort of get a leg out, but it just goes just I think goes through him slightly but I think it's just a, it's just a good goal and you just got to say well you know it's just one of those things it's um quite not that preventable really I uh, I remember bumping into you Jack at, on the concourse at half time and uh, we spoke about the goal and I started saying you know that's the problem you get with and before I finished you just went of playing a right footer at left back and I was like yeah exactly and this mm. is where as he receives that ball he's He's what he wants to do is get it onto his right foot and play a ball inside because that's where he feels more comfortable. Now, Spurs deal with it well because Harrison Reed makes a decent run, but it's tracked. And so that suddenly isn't an option. And there, from there, what you want is is your fullback just to see if he can get it down the line. But being on his right foot and not wanting to shift it onto his left, he suddenly just holds it and holds it and holds it longer and longer. And then it's gone. And then he's just. I mean, yes, maybe he could have done something different at that sort of point. Knowing that it led to the goal, we would be sitting here thinking, maybe you just even give it, put it out for a throw-in. You know, you don't take the risk. But equally, if he puts it out for a throw-in and then that goes into a goal, then we were saying that the inverse. So it's tricky. And I feel bad for him because it's not necessarily his fault in a sense that he's put in a, a difficult situation. But yeah, it was poor decision-making in the end. Yeah. As a right back that's uh, been horribly shifted out to left back very often just to fill a, fill a position, I feel so much. I feel so much for Kevin and Babu. It's a horrible position to be in when I am horribly one footed. <laughs> no, I do think in a more general sense there there is some sympathy to be had, especially with the system, because especially in the games at Arsenal and Tottenham, we've set up very narrow, um, which I also thinks affects the way Reed and Pelinia play. But in that game when Mbappé's playing on an unnatural side in a narrow formation against the Tottenham team that thrives so heavily off using two wide players so far forward, whether that be with Emerson and Richarlison on his side or Sessegnon and Son on the other side. I, I think he was doomed to fail playing such a narrow formation on the wrong side. And as Farrell's pointed out, playing a right footer on a left-hand side, in, in even in a back five against Tottenham, I think he would have struggled, let alone in a back four. Yeah, I, I did think, and I was having the same kind of thoughts about Bobby Reed, Farrell, and, and just wondering if you could stick him into a, a wing-back position on, on that left-hand side and, and try and kind of pin back a little bit. It also gives you that option that if you are getting your wing-backs forward, it means that Bobby Reed is, is the player that's cutting inside onto his stronger foot and, and more likely to be getting shots away, etc. Mm. And, and let Mbappu kind of play down that right and, and, and play in his more natural position. If you're going to sit, stick someone in an unnatural position, it feels right to use, you know, the utility player in this squad, you know, and, and that's not a, a dig. It's a compliment, if anything. Versatility, I know, is a blessing and a curse. Um, but it also it also means that Bobby is used to moving around and playing different roles. We've seen him do it before. And, and I did have the same kind of thought. We got into halftime then and, you know, those last five or six minutes that were added on, um, and, and rightly so, we we did um, we, we we did some some game management, should I say, in, in that first half, and we got in at the break at one 0 down, and you go right regroup and and set up, and I did think Dan that, that Fulham were better second half. 
you know, it, to be fair, the bar was relatively low, considering that we, we basically didn't do anything at all in, in the first half. Um, but it did seem that we came out with a little bit more intent and purpose, I thought. Yeah, 100%. I think intent is, is the big thing. It's just in that first half, we looked completely sort of devoid of ideas in possession. I, I think out of possession, if barring that that goal, we did really well. And and that that sort of wasn't the issue. But any time we, we got the ball in the first half, we, we ended up doing nothing with it. And second half, it improved a lot. You know, I think we found, found our wide men a bit more often. We created a, a more chances to get the ball into the box or at least in and around Mitrovic as opposed to in the first half, when he was just a complete passenger in that game through no fault of his own. There was just no supply at all. Um, I guess there's also an element of, especially towards the end of the game, that we were afforded more chances to get forward as well. You know, game gets a bit more stretched. Spurs are happy to sit in a little bit more and let us come onto them a bit further. But there was definitely more intent and there was more creativity and a bit more drive going in that second half. And that just comes from, I think, regrouping and going, right, lads, we can't go out and put another performance in like that in the second half because we'll get absolutely nothing here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're spot on. And and Faz, you know, we came to it and Spurs score a second goal. There's an element of fortune about it in the way that it rebounds to, to Ryan Sessegnon. He puts the ball across Harry Kane. Let's clear up right now that he's fully not offside. The ball goes backwards. Um, but yeah. it is one of those where you watch it and you know the, the hope of it being checked. You're like, oh, maybe, maybe. No, no chance. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that goal. And at that point, it kind of feels game done and dusted a little bit because we'd created so little. And then out of nothing, Mitro does, you know, that basically. He, he comes out and pulls a wonder goal out of the bag. And, you know, we've spoke about it a little bit. He's a man oozing confidence at the moment. I think Peter described him as thus uh, last Thursday club. Um, and, and he just feels like everything he touches, he's like, yeah, I fancy it. And, and when he fancies it, it just seems to be pulling off at the moment for him. One thing that I, I've said in the past about Mitrovic, and it is a little bit of a criticism was that when he was in the Premier League, he was a bit of a dithery striker from time to time. Like he'd have the option just to get the shot away. And he would take just that little extra touch or that little extra time just to get, just to sort of, uh, you know, put his foot through it. But you can see now in these six games so far that he gets the ball, he knows exactly what he's going to do before he's even received it. And he's had more time to try and you know, think about what he wants to do and just go for it. And that is, maybe it's a sign of confidence. Maybe it's a sign of experience. Maybe it's a sign of coaching, but whatever it is, it's it's bloody well working, isn't it? I mean, it, it was a wonderful goal. And obviously where the Fulham fans were uh, were situated, we saw the flight of the ball immediately. I mean, it took it definitely took me by surprise at how good that shot was. It's a beautiful um, effort. It's yeah, a it's really, wonderful. really good strike. And and it's yeah. exactly what he's trying to do as well, which is the kind of thing that, you know, sometimes you get goals, you know, that kind of angle out into, into that corner. And you're like, mm, not sure you meant to do that, mate. But there is nothing that's, that's lucky about this. It is completely, and I use Telegraph, I, I often use Telegraph in a very negative sense, and I will do in a minute again. But right on this one, it's telegraphed perfectly. And it's exactly what he's intending to do. Yeah, it was like... Um... It was like it was on a wire, like he'd already put the wire out and just put that ball on it and just fizzed it into the top corner. And, you know, it, it, I don't, and he's got that down and that's great. And it, it, obviously the shot after that, that was deflected. I love the way that he sort of waited for his moment to actually pick that spot again. Yes, it was deflected, but I love the way he darts inside. And then I don't know who's trying to come back at 
come back from the midfield to try and take the ball off him. But he sort of like takes that sort of, he doesn't take that extra touch. He sort of waits for that extra touch to sort of sell that man a little bit of a dummy. So then it creates the extra space for himself to then get that shot away. And it shows again, what a fantastic player, you know, he was, but now what an even, even better player he has become. Where we're uh, talking earlier about not executing Marcus Silva's sort of desires in the first half, that goal, I think, summed up what we're trying to do this season because we actually won the ball back on our own byline and four passes from there saw us put the ball in the back of the net. And I think that's the sort of directness that we were missing in the first half and obviously we didn't have the opportunities well due to how Spurs set up but I think that was exactly what Marcus Silva wants us to do you know it was it was two little intricate passes in a tight space on the edge of our area opened up to Kenny Tete and then we were away and I thought it was actually it, it sort of maybe goes a little bit unmissed but four passes from your old goal line is pretty good going and without being necessarily long ball or direct it was it was just well put together. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, and, and then obviously, George, it, there's a couple of things. Obviously, the Mitrovic deflected strike comes a little bit later. But straight after the goal, there's an opportunity and it comes across to Tom Kearney. And this is what I was talking about, telegraphing. And the moment it comes across to him, you know, he's going to shift this out on his left foot and try and curl it. I think it's there to be hit first time on the instep. Um, but there was a moment where I was like, okay, if Mitro's telegraphed the one before and, and he knows exactly what he's trying to do, I think if I knew that was coming, I'd imagine that Christian Romero did as well, George. Yeah, and I think if um, if they've seen anything about Tom Kearney, they know that he loves to set himself on the left foot and put it into the corner. It's very much his trademark. Um, so I'm not surprised that Romero saw it come in. But we did have a few other moments at the end, like you mentioned. the loop. There was a looped one off the Tottenham defender that very nearly went over Lloris into the right-hand corner. Um, and I think ultimately the pressure came a little bit too late, but I wouldn't have been surprised if one of them did go in at the end because we were peppering them. And there was a bit of deja vu when that one was looping over uh, Lloris because that was another one previously in the second half, maybe at 1-0, that was exactly the same, maybe didn't cause him quite as many issues. But I think we just left it a little bit too late with the chance we were creating. And like you said, it would have been lovely if Tom had put it onto his left foot and curled it past Lloris, but it wasn't to be. No, no, it very much wasn't. Um, the substitutes, Dan, all had an impact to a point, I thought. Um, there were there were some good cameos. I thought Tom Kenny was excellent when he came on, much as I've criticised that, that shot. I thought he, he really did change the flow of the game and and brought us into it on the front foot and were able to kind of get away. I thought he was excellent. I thought Dan James looked lively. Willian looks slow. This is my big takeaway. The man, the man blues at pedestrian speed, but there's still signs, I think, that he can do nice things with the football. And, and, and he was never he was never absolutely rapid, was he? That was never really his trademark. Um, and Carlos Vinicius came on and put himself about. And I think this is it. You know, you, you're obviously chasing a game and game state's important. But I thought he, he, he did some nice things. He, he came in and he looked like he was he was up for it, up for the fight. He was he was getting in tussles. And look, Mitrovic will tell you that. Tussling with Christian Romero is no no easy task. And Vinicius got the better of him in the middle a couple of times, I thought. Yeah, it was really promising. I think that's, that's exactly what we want to see. And, you know, I think it affirms that... One of the things that with Rodrigo Muniz that I think I've, I struggled with was that he, there's quite a lot of him and he's still at an age where I don't think he quite knows what to do with his body and how to use it to its most effective. Whereas I think... Vinicius came on and you could see that this is a man who knows how to hold up the play. He knows how to be a bit of a bully and use his body. And that's good because 
whilst that chaos with Rodrigo Munez is fun, you'd rather bring someone off the bench that you know exactly what they're going to provide to this team. On Willian, I've seen quite a lot of criticism for him and I sort of, I understand it, but I think there was, going back to the goal, it's actually two really good touches from him that actually create the whole goal because he receives quite a rough pass from Polina. He takes one touch very well and lays it off to Harrison Reed. And I think that's the sort of qualities we're going to get with him. You know, we're not expecting him anymore and even back in the day to take on a man and, and beat him in a foot race. But if we can have someone with that quality and if he can use those little touches in and around the opposition's area, then that's going to be useful in, in, in unpicking defences. And I think, you know, at least in the short term, there's something you can contribute. And then finally, on Dan James, there was one moment that I really liked and it wasn't actually necessarily from him, but it was more about what he's going to provide is there was one moment when it sort of bobbled into Mitrovic and he sort of hooked one over his shoulder, sort of on the half volley yep. into that space for Dan James. And the moment I saw that, I was like, firstly... That's that's really promising to see because he's been there for two days and already we've got that sort of that brain working, that link up play working, and it just gives us that extra dimension again. You know, we saw it with Harry Wilson when he was playing on that out on that right, the number of times Mitrovic would play that ball sort of in between the centre back and the left back for for Harry Wilson to chase. And now we've got that option again with Dan James. That gave me a little bit of excitement of like, right, now we've got a little bit of a different dimension again. And I also think in a more general comment about the substitution, it really is underlying the importance of the deals we made on deadline day and the profile of player that Marco Silva's brought in, especially when chasing games. I mean, last season, if you look at games like Reading at home or Coventry at home, the idea was just put Moonies on and there is some chaos there. Whereas for Tottenham, the Tottenham game, for example, we saw that Mitrovic was causing Romero problems, like Jack says, that that's not easy. And we've got a similar profile there in, Vin- in Vinicius. And similarly, if Mitrovic isn't having his best day, we've seen what James can do as a quick presser of the ball up front. And I don't think it's a tricky substitution to make in the system that Marco's playing this season because a lot of the time, Andreas Pereira is almost playing as a second striker. He's pressing high. So if we are chasing a game from a goal or two behind, there is that option to just say, well, let's play two outright strikers. We'll bring Pereira off. And whether it's Vinicius, if Mitrovic is having success, or whether it's James, if we want that little man in behind, we've got those options that we didn't have in the first five games of the season. And quite frankly, we didn't have last season. As I didn't think Muniz did badly, but I just don't think he offered the the profile we needed off the bench in in many games, like mentioned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, right, before we move on to a host of questions, Farrell, a word on Ryan Sessegnon, who was absolutely sensational yesterday, and I hate to say it, but he was excellent. There were moments, obviously, the foul throw um, and, and the offside the offside third goal, um, where it felt like he was maybe doing us a wee favour here or there. But um, I, I, was, I would say completely unintentionally. Let's, let's, not, let's not make this what it's not. <laughs> um, but equally, you know, he is thriving and he, he was really, really impressive. Yeah, I I've I really want him to do well, like um and it's great to see him flourishing, you know. You know, I'd rather how much he didn't he do it against us. Like but... No, I know, I know. Um it was great that he came over to the fans afterwards as well. It reminded me of when Lewis Bermorte moved uh across town to West Ham and then um a bit brighter days because it we got a last minute equalizer from Philippe Christenval that day. Um, and, but, and so the, the, fan, the fans were in much happier mood when Lewis Bermorte came over and it was probably our loudest chant uh, of that day. But um, 
yeah, yesterday it was great that he came over and he's doing really well. I think he fits into the, the Conte system. Like, you know, back in the day when he first emerged, we were like, well, what's his best position, left wing or left back? And maybe left wing back was probably his, his best position. And in the Conte system, it worked. And he had so much joy down that left-hand side. He knew when to make the run. He knew when to make the pass. Several times, it was very, very instinctive. He knew when to find Harry Kane or Son. Quite a lot of the times, it was it was very instinctive. And that's probably down to the coaching he's got. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's great. He's still so young as well. And, you know, the fact that, that the players he's playing around shows the level of ability that that he's got right now is it's actually it's it's nice to see it's yeah. nice to see really i just wish he didn't celebrate that disallowed goal so, so much <laughs> <laughs> i thought the same i thought the same um yeah and, and and as dad mentioned it was one of those where you know he plays so high up in this system that he is almost playing as auxiliary left winger and and that suits his game so much so so you know fair play to him go and thrive now just don't do it at the cottage please on the, the way back right we've got an absolute stack of questions we're going to be delving into them after the break cool all good Welcome back to the Full Image Podcast. I'm Jack Collins, and I'm joined by Farrell Monk. Oh, hello! Oh, hello, hello. We're gonna we're gonna do hellos on the second part. We won't do them in the third. Mr. Dan Cook, <laughs> hi, Jack, and Mr. George Ross, sir. Hello, hello. Right, so we've got loads of questions, so I'm gonna rattle through them. Um, first one from TFFC at Tier to Take, who said, "Do you expect Dan James to start from next weekend?" Dan. Oh. That is a good question. Uh, I'm probably going to go with no Mm. at this point. I think the one thing he's got in his favour, which I think is a very positive thing, is that we haven't signed someone who wasn't playing the start of this season. You know, we're going to touch on Levin Kazawa, but Dan James, you know, has has been a a, a decent fixture in this Leeds team for the start of this season, which is part of the surprise as to why we ended up getting him. But I think he's got that in his favour. However, I think maybe in general, Marco might be a bit hesitant with someone who isn't quite in tune with, you know, the system and how we're playing yet. We are we are massively different from Leeds, uh, and so there's a, a potential that that he may need a little bit longer. And although Niskins and Bobby were not very involved against Spurs, they've been largely good this season, and I think he wouldn't. It would send a bad message as well, I think, if he if he actively dropped one of them straight away like that. And I think we could probably expect him to come off the bench again around the 60-minute mark is what I would maybe expect against Chelsea. Yeah, I think I'd tend to agree. I think it's probably a little bit early to chuck him in. And in a game, I think, where we might have more control of things, um, it, it probably won't be quite as necessary to, to unleash him from the start. If, weirdly, if we were having this game again from the weekend next weekend, I'd, I'd be tempted to say yes. But I think against Chelsea, he probably won't kick things off. Um, OK, George, this is from Joshua Aubrey. He says... Do we need to switch systems against clubs like Spurs, Arsenal and City? Like go into a back three, for example. We're still playing well against the big clubs, but could a back three have helped us scrap a draw against the North London team? Well, I think what we've seen, especially in the away games at Arsenal and Tottenham, maybe a bit less so in, in the Wolves game. Because I've noticed a slight change of style more when it's away versus home rather than big team versus small team in the way that we play a lot more compactly. And I think... One thing it does do is it it disengages the midfield a bit. You know, in, in, in home games, we've seen how effective Reed and Polinia have been when they've got the, the, the freedom to battle against the other midfield. Whereas yesterday, we're playing so compact and 
it looked like that Benton Core and Hoiberg were pushing Reed and Polinia so far back that they can't affect the game. And I, I definitely put it in my notes for the ratings for both the Arsenal and Tottenham game that when you're so compact and you've got a player like Harrison Reed who's here, there, and everywhere, and that's what his game's based on, you, you, you don't see him in the game. And when he's such an important player for us, it, it does respond negatively to the rest of the team. And I think also with Jao Palinha, he's, he's more likely of the two to affect the game from deep in a game where we are on the back foot and Andreas Pereira is going to be not only focusing on trying to press high and make Silver's system work, but also, especially yesterday, when you've got the flat-back three and then in front of them you've got Rodrigo Bentancur and Pierre-Emil Hoiberg. He, j- he just wasn't finding any space. And I don't think that was Pereira's fault, but then for you to create chances, you're looking slightly further back and Palinha and Reed just weren't able to affect the game yesterday. So I don't know if it's necessarily a case of going to a back three. I think it's more just taking the attitude of the games at home, which we've shown in the way we've started so intensely against Liverpool, Brighton and Brentford, and trying to take that into the away fixtures, especially against the Tottenham's and the Arsenal's, because we can't expect to beat them. But if we show the attitude we have in the games, then we're more than capable of being competitive, as we've shown. I know I'm I'm like you, JC, in that I'm a man who likes a midfield three mm. playing in front of a back four, uh, and and there are there are many reasons for that. And some of them are some of them, yeah, yeah, and some of them are purely sentimental. In fairness, but there's a couple of issues that I have with the sort of the, the switch into back five. One, having an extra centre back doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be better defensively. It, it's not always a perfect solution. But my, I think my biggest issue with this side is that if we do switch to a back five and go to a midfield two suddenly your out ball has been killed because if you send that long to Mitrovic he is holding the ball up for no one I think you've got that support from out wide but a lot of the time he's so good at bringing for example recently Andres Pereira into play by bringing that ball down and bringing a man in the middle into play and if you take that man out and you've got two midfielders who are sitting Suddenly the ball goes up to Mitrovic and there's nothing he can do with it. And I think it's it's too, it's a bit risky to sort of lose, to, to go sort of impotent in attack in these games because you, you, you can't defend for a full 90 minutes. You do need to be able to get out and play. Yeah, 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 I completely agree. I also think it's interesting that obviously we went to that back five when Mbappé came on, but by the time we came back out for the second half, that was no longer the case. We'd, we'd gone straight back into the back four and clearly that that's something that, you know, that Marco made a decision on at Farrell. Yeah, I just was just going to say that, it, you know, when you're saying like going to a back five doesn't always suit the team. And I've just got memories of the disastrous spell under Claudio Ranieri when we were playing five at the back and it just was not working. I think it was like Reem, Adoy, Lamarchand, Brian and Christie probably playing or or maybe Cess or someone like that. And it was just, it was awful. It just did not suit our system from a team that were defending really poorly just to, you know, and defenders who were not playing very well, being shoehorned into this, into a back five, just, just didn't work then. So if it's not going to work then, then maybe it won't work this time. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth considering. Um, this question I was going to give to you, Farrell, is from Gordon at FFC Riverside. He said, what do you think of the safe standing at Tottenham? Uh, it's actually my first experience of the safe standing. Um, Mine too. And and um, I I did enjoy it apart from the fact that my incredibly uh, imposing stature of five foot six. I did enjoy the fact that my um, 
my mate's brother-in-law who stands at about six foot four was in front of me and also Ian Clark from the trust was also to one side as well who also stands quite above six foot as well so I didn't enjoy that aspect of it but it was it was it was good it was it was roomy it was um it gave me something to lean on yes um that's the big one is just being able to lean on the thing in front exactly um and when we did celebrate i didn't end up getting like scuffed knees from the chair in front or anything like that which is which is all good so it's all very positive from from my from my point of view i don't want to necessarily bring the tone down but on a slightly serious point of view like having safe standing it is exactly what it says on the tin like when we have the complete opposite at the back mm. of the hammersmith end which is unsafe standing i've got a 70 year old dad who i go with to every game and it was so nice yesterday not having to worry if we scored or if something happened that my dad was going to get crushed like every week at the moment. And it's great. The atmosphere is fantastic. And I'm not telling people not to celebrate. It's not their fault. You know, we all want to celebrate. But it was just nice to have to, to feel like no one's going to come vaulting over the row in behind mm. or fall back from the row in front. It was just it's, it's, it is a good experience. Yeah, I agree. And I think that I think that Fulham do have to be wary of that especially since a lot of the Hammersmith then do stand up and the club don't seem to do anything about it, that it could get to a stage that their hand is forced in that regard and they do have to put in some sort of safe standing measure. Otherwise, they'll you know, they'll just have to force people to sit down, which will go down very badly with a lot well, of it, people. They, it just won't work, will it? Like, people will just stand no. up. It's like that announcement that comes on every every <laughs> week at the cottage. And, yeah. you know, this is an all-seater stadium and then the entirety of the Hammersmith that actually stands up. So it's just like <laughs> yeah. one of those moments you're like, okay, fine, this is this is not... But I agree. It was it was really nice. It was lots of space. Um, it felt very comfortable and, and I enjoyed it a lot. I was also behind a tall person, Farrell. So I, I, in, in that regard, <laughs> maybe, maybe, we have to, maybe we'll have to... To think about that as a as something we can we can implement like this row is for people who are five foot six this row is for people who are five foot seven uh you're not allowed to sit with your You'll friends be... anymore you just have to sit with your height companions um <laughs> we're just like... me you and jack kelly in the front row and don't bet what fun, what Betts, fun yeah. we shall have what fun we'll ne- we shall we'll, have we'll never see dan cook at a game ever again <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. is it maybe at the maybe the pint for half time um we shall see um okie dokie let's keep going um and let's go to this question from Elliot Jeffords who said deadline day in the rear do you think if we'd kept Fabio would we have seen the same starting form Dan yes yeah uh, if um potentially I mean potentially even arguably slightly better because what I think Fulham have done well is that in Andreas Pereira they have they've picked up a player who is sort of contributing and trying to fulfill the same role that Fabio was doing in terms of being dynamic off the ball and also trying to create things on the ball. And so in a way, you know, that's worked well because we haven't had to shift too far from that. However, I think the form that Fabio showed last season and the snippets I've seen of him for Liverpool this season, that there are just elements to his game that I love. Uh, and it's one of them it particularly is the way he receives the ball on the half turn. Yeah. He's, he's always looking to to sort of open up and, and drive forward when he receives the ball. And so I, we definitely wouldn't be doing worse, I don't think. And arguably, yeah, maybe a little bit even better. 
Yeah, I, I think it's spot on. It's, it's that kind of profile that we found, which is, is designed to replicate the best bits of, of Fabio's game. Um, I just think that he's, you know, even at this stage of his career, a slightly better player. So, but that, you know, that's not to take away from Andreas' start because I think I think he's been excellent and, and he's put in a real shift. And fair play to him because there were plenty of questions around him on his arrival at Fulham. Um, let's go to this one, George. Uh, Fred Martin said, with the break in the season coming after 16 games, uh, I can see it's benefiting any team struggling at the bottom a chance to reset the season and come out firing on boxing day i'd say a realistic target after 16 for us is 20 points to keep us out of the struggling pack what are your thoughts well i mean to start with i think with the competitiveness of the league it's quite hard to make a judgment on what a good points total is going into the world cup um i believe a couple of seasons ago under parker it took us more games than we're at now to get as close as we are to eight points. So to even, I mean, Leicester are the only really real team that haven't got going. You know, you look at teams that are struggling. I know Everton are winless, but they picked up four draws in a row. There's a form of momentum. I think there isn't a team bar Leicester and who knows what will happen with Brendan Rodgers there who haven't got going. Whereas two years ago, there was four teams. I remember at the bottom in us, West Brom, Sheffield United and another who hadn't got going quick enough. So I think firstly on that question, it's hard to judge what a good position is going to be going into the wins break with not only the competitiveness of the league, but also four or five days after that first game back, you've got the transfer window. So a lot will be affected by not only who people bring in quite quickly in that window, but also also who get, gets injured at the World Cup because there's not going to be a team who doesn't have players going and I guess also the World Cup gives teams time to prepare for their, their signings in January that they wouldn't normally have in such a rust window. So I, I do get that it's a good time to reset, but if you're going to have new players coming in for January, if you're going to have players going to the World Cup, it does make it hard to prepare because you're not going to have some players. So it's just, it's just a season like no other, isn't it, with the World Cup slapped in the middle of it? Who, who knows where we're going to be, but... If we're, if we're on 20 points after 16 games, I think we'll be in a good pl- good position. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think George is spot on in the sense, I think almost the the the, win, the the break for the World Cup will only allow you to reset if you're not losing like core team players. And I think that's the biggest effect is I think teams who are losing players to the World Cup are going to be negatively affected, not just because players are going to be, you know, coming back tired, but it doesn't actually allow you to reset because you can't go back and revisit, you know, how the first 16 games have gone. What do you need to do to change things? Because if you've got five or six players away at the World Cup, you just can't do that. And on the points tally, I think, yeah, if we can be on 20 points after 16 games, that translates across a full season as points per game as 47, 48 points. And I mean... That, you know, that will I, be enough. I don't care how will, good it, everyone is. That's yeah. more than enough. It, it will be enough. And I think that the fact that it's more than enough is also good if we can get there because it means you're ahead of the curve, right? You're like, you're ahead of where you need to be. And that's why an, a good start is so important because, as you said earlier, you don't want to like to say the word afford, but you can afford to lose certain games because you've got yourself to a place where you don't need to win every game. You're not looking for miracles. Yeah. And also most relative, relevant to Fulham is the players will lose. Like If you look at the starting 11 we've been putting out recently, the three big losses we could have if they all were selected are Tim Ream, Jao Palinha and Alexander Mitrovic. That's 
not only three of our better performing players, but that's our spine. And that's three players that when Marco's working on the system and working on a, not a reset if we don't need it, but just working on getting players' minds into how he wants to play, they're going to be big misses for a month of training. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I double down on that. I think I think that's completely fair enough. Um, okay, there is one more question that I really liked. Uh, it's from Aaron Williams, and I, I want all three of your thoughts on this one. He, he said, whilst it's obviously great to have Mitrovic firing, are we going towards a situation where we'll become dependent on him? Our system is built around him. Marco has, himself has said as much. And we don't really have reliable goal-scoring sources from anywhere else right now. What does the pod think? Faz, I'll come to you on this one first. Um. I think uh, if you asked me this a few weeks ago, I would tend to agree. But I also think that Marco Silva would definitely have that on his mind. Uh, and all it takes is one or two injuries. And, you know, things at the moment don't look pretty rosy in terms of squad depth. But we talked about that quite a lot in the past. But now we have Carlos Vinicius in the, uh, as backup. Um, I think that's a great option off the bench. Um, and in that little cameo that I saw yesterday there's a lot of positives there but I also think that um this is a thing that every manager probably has and I think Marco is 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 one of them that he's probably thought about okay what would we do if that happens and I'm sure that in training sessions that they've already done that much like you know when Mitro was uh suspended for a couple of games a few years ago when people worried about where the goals came in all of a sudden Kamara came in and played very admirably and played pretty much the same so we played pretty much the same way and he, he scored a few goals and uh, same last season, Muniz just came in like, yeah, he's obviously not up to the level of the Premier League and, you know, nowhere near yes. as good as Mitrovic, but <laughs> yet, but, um, you know, he slotted in quite admirably. And I think that's probably um, down to the coaching staff saying, okay, it, you know, we'll bring in some players who are of similar sort of physical elements to their game that sort of fit the system rather than just bringing any striker in and just hoping for the best if they have to slot in. I think yeah. that Carlos Vinicius with his physicality does does sort of perform that for yeah, if him. It's, if it's the mould, yeah. And I think in a more simple and direct response to that question is that there's not many managers out there who aren't going to play to their strengths. And Marco Silva playing to his strengths last season gave him a 43-goal striker who broke so many records and won a league title. And while there was a lot of talk about whether or not he could do it in the Premier League and all that, I think as much as we knew that he could, there was still thoughts in Fulham fans' minds of how he'd adapt, how the silver system would adapt. And we're here in the Premier League, we started well and he's got six goals from six and somehow... He's got his game is constantly evolving, even from the championship up to the Premier League, and he's adapting so well that you can't not pay, play to that big of a strength in your team like Alexander Mitrovic is for us. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I mean, the kind of final point of this, and is what I kind of bring to you, Dan, is obviously Marco Silva expected to have his next two main goal scoring threats in Harry Wilson and Mana Solomon removed from him, taken kind of from under him. Obviously, he's waiting till deadline day to get those players replaced. That's going to play a massive factor in this. Yeah, it's like you've read my mind. This is exactly what I was going to go on to, is that if you look across sort of Premier League seasons, in general, you're looking at teams like us, you're getting, you've got your, your, your main goal threat and they're getting somewhere between sort of 25, 30, 35% of your team's goals because that is their job to put the ball in the net. But the 
the teams of our level who are looking to stay in the league or maybe go a little bit above that are also have a second an auxiliary goal threat and that's we have that we have you know Harry Wilson was that last season yeah and so I think at the moment it's a little bit inflated because as much as Neeson did brilliantly last season in, in you know in front of goal he's not a, a I wouldn't say he's a necessarily a natural goal scoring winger in the same way that Harry Wilson is that goal threat so Whilst I understand, yeah, right now it looks a little bit like we're over-reliant, you, you bring in one other goal scorer and if Mitrovic can get 30, 35% of our goals and that's, you know, double figures for the season and then we've got somewhat, you know, the, the remaining 70% spread across the side, then we're okay. But if, you know, if we're getting into points where he's scoring over half of our goals, then I think we're struggling. Yeah, no, I think that's completely fair that you could do that in the Championship, but uh, things are a little bit different in the Premier League. Uh, right, that's all the questions for this week. Thank you ever so much, as ever, for sending them in. Um, we have enjoyed discussing that pack for, from Twitter. I really very much enjoyed some of those questions. Uh, after the break, we're going to be talking about Anthony Robinson's potential injury and this lovely tale of Jay Stansfield. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Fulhamish podcast. I'm Jack Collins and I'm joined by Farrell Monk, Dan Cook and George Rossiter. Two big stories, I suppose, outside of what we've already discussed. Um, one is Fulham on pitch related and one is a young striker out on loan and a fairy tale story in so many ways. We'll start with the on pitch stuff. Anthony Robinson obviously went off injured yesterday and and looked like he was struggling, came back on after the original knock and then had to had to limp off. It was very difficult in some ways to watch. And obviously Fulham struggled without him. Dan, Levin Kazawa is obviously signed on deadline day as backup for Anthony Robinson. And that's grand. Um, but if he's dropped straight into this Chelsea game, having not played football for over a year at senior level, that's a slight concern. Yes, this, this, this is a problem. But I think it's our only solution, which is the the worrying thing and i just when i've been thinking this through i think the one thing that gives me a bit of comfort and i I wonder if marco will look to do this because they have at times played on on opposite wings i would be tempted you know if we are going to thrust kazar in to play bobby reed on the left and see if you can just help him out a little bit you know he's going to struggle throughout the game he's going to get leggy towards the end as well and we know with Bobby Deacon over Reed, that he is going to be able to to double up with his fullback, help him out defensively, much more so than Niskan's Cabano can. And so I think that might be the best solution because I think anything outside of that, you're looking at actually a change of system. And I think, especially going, you know, in, in a derby game and having done so well in the first six games, I'd be so hesitant to change an entire system based on the fact that we don't want to play a player who we brought in on deadline day. I think, one, it sends a very bad message to Levin Kazawa. I'm sure he would understand, but it doesn't look great. And two, I just don't think we we, we would be able to, to sort of fit into a new system so quickly based on the fact that we'd have, what, five days to, to prep it. And so I think our, our best solution is you, you play Levin Kazawa and you give him some support from his winger. Yeah, no, I, I think that's completely fair enough. You know, you maybe play a Bobby Deckard over Reed on that side in order to to make sure that he's covered. Um, and, and we were talking about this, you know, in the game 
on Saturday, the fact that Bobby is obviously the more defensively astute winger of the pair. Um, and I thought it took a while for him to actually come over to Mbabu's side to, to help him out. And actually that might have been part of a solution that, that, that could have worked. George, you know, Anthony Robinson's tweeted today, basically been like, you know, sad to go off with injury. Hopefully it's nothing too serious, um, which is, you know, the, I suppose gives some hope in this. There is also the element that Levin Kazabo, much as he hasn't played, and you know, that is a worry. I don't think anyone's going to turn around and say that isn't a concern. Is a left back who has, you know, undoubted quality, who has been training at PSG, you know, with, with some of the best players in the world for the past year, um, and who, you know, has the ability to and, and the know-how of playing in big games, in playing in derby games, in playing, you know, in, in front of massive crowds, that could end up being a positive as well. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at facts, this is someone who's had six seasons at Monaco and moved to Paris Saint-Germain. He's played at least 15 to 20 games for six consecutive seasons up until last year when he didn't play. And obviously that that's the reason for worry is just how little he's played over the last 18 months. But that quality doesn't disappear in that time. Um, and ultimately, by the time we get to the Chelsea game, he'd have been under Marco Silva's wing for nine or ten days. He'll understand the system. He'll have a feel of the club. And I just can't see a world in which playing someone out of position is a better fit than the obvious solution that sat right in front of you in live in Kazawa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose match fitness is the only, you know, and, and whether he is up to that speed is the only question. But I agree with you both in that it, it's difficult to see how he wouldn't play if Anthony Robinson isn't back. And look, we know how good Anthony Robinson's start to the season has been. There is also the element of if he's borderline, you don't really want to risk him because he's been such a key element of this side. And he won't want to risk the idea of missing this World Cup with the USMNT either. And, and, and all of those things matter. And it's about managing these things. So, so Kazawa may well be in line for a debut. What a, what a cauldron to, uh, to have your debut in. I'm sure, I'm sure he'll love it. He's a fiery character after all. Um, let's move on to the other story here, though, which is Jay Stansfield's return to Exeter City on loan. Now, Farrell, I know this is one close to your heart, so I'm actually just going to open the floor to you <laughs> so um i've been to quite a few extra city games uh living with uh, a guy at university uh who the previous year that i met him he had done a hundred percent home and away extra city in the conference you know that that is some effort there so that's the level of extra city fan that this lad uh matt is um so i i had been i'd seen adam stansfield play for extra city quite a few times i saw him come on um at Wembley in one of the uh in one of the playoff finals that he was and make no mistake Adam Stansfield is a massive legend for Exeter City um they always sing sing a song for our Stano pretty much every every game and I think that it's such a wonderful lovely moment that Jay is able to go uh back to St James Park he, he made his came on to make his debut yesterday uh, at an away game uh came on for the last 10 minutes wearing the number nine shirt that they retired um for Adam Stansfield when he's when he passed away uh 12 years ago whatever it was I think it's such a poignant moment obviously picked up on loads of social media channels and um yeah I think it's a lovely moment and um I can't imagine the emotions that Jay must have been going through coming on the pitch wearing Stansfield number nine on his back yeah I also think it's worth mentioning that Exeter weren't the only club in for him like this is very much a decision where he's gone with his heart, I know that there was a rumoured interest from both Millwall and Birmingham of the championship. So 
there were moves there where he really could have proved himself at the level below, but it's a, it's obviously a club special to not just Jay, but the whole family. And, you know, he's got the stand named after him. He's got the number of his father. And I don't think there's many teams in the world that could have come in that he'd have said yes over Exeter to. So it is a really special moment. And seeing him in tears as he clapped the fans after the game is a really, really lovely moment. Yeah, really poignant. Very, very emotional. And, and, and this is it. There was a little bit of debate on social media over, you know, whether Jay Stansfield, you know, having played in the Premier League, a full 90, you know, well, not a full 90, but a start against Brentford, came on at the Emirates against Arsenal. Uh, there was this, you know, conversation of, is Jay Stansfield going a level too low? Um, you know, it's not just... Also, bear in mind that this Exeter, you know, whilst our wonderful club, you know, have just come up from League Two. This isn't like he's gone and joined a dominant side in League One looking to kick on and, and win a title. He, he's joined a club who, you know, whose main aim this season is to survive. Um, and and that's, a, that's a different thing. But I think the thing is that when you look at this and you, you can't take the emotion out of it, Yes, Jay Stansfield could have probably gone on a, on a championship loan, and I think he would have done well. I think he's good enough, um, but I, I don't think there's anything in the world that you could you could say no to in, in in this move because it's just such a special, emotional, poignant thing for him to go and do. And you know, the other thing here is that Jay Stansfield, you know, at, at the level that I think he's capable of playing, might not get another chance to go and play for Exeter City. You know, for the next 10, 12 years, you know, he might end up. Back at the end of his career, back there in kind of the latter part, but he's got an opportunity here to go and prove himself at the, you know when he's an up and coming star, rather than you know someone on the decline or or someone coming to the twilight of their career. And I think that's important, Barrel. Yeah, it's it is very important, and like to you know to put a pragmatic edge on it too. This is you know if he goes to a championship level, you know he's got to kind of prove himself to uh, you know at an incredibly competitive level, you know. This was a league last year that had Mitrovic in it. So uh, to make that sort of like to go to League One, uh, will he'd definitely get more. Absolutely, he'd be starting eleven week in, week out, I'm sure. And I think that introduces him to a, le- a level of commitment that you have to be prepared to play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. You need to be prepared and on it week in, week out to perform, which if you're championship level he might be well I don't know if I'm going to play this weekend oh I got 10 minutes here I started that game I didn't play for two games that you know that kind of thing and you can kind of switch off in that regard whereas this time he can get to the rigors of playing week in week out at a very competitive professional level Um, I think that's just going to be some experience that is just invaluable to his development and hopefully Fulham can get the reward of it. Yeah, I, I think so. It's um, it, it's just a nice fit, I think, for for everyone involved. And obviously, we hope he has the most amazing time down there and and, and shines in that Exeter City shirt, which will mean you know the world to him. So, go well, Stano. I think is the uh, the general sentiment from everyone here. Um, and on that bombshell, I think we're going to close this podcast off. Uh, the last thing to do, Farrell, is to name it. There were some great, great, great suggestions. But I can't look past Rick Cardus's Jedi Fallen Order. Yes, very good. It's very, very good. I like I like Need a Padawan. I thought Need a Padawan was absolutely <laughs> yeah. excellent. Um, but yes, very, very good. Jedi Fallen Order it is. Um, lovely. Right then. Well, all that's left for me to say is a massive thank you to Mr. Farrell Monk. Thank you very much, Jack. A very massive thank you to Mr. Dan Cook. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, JC. And well done and thank you to Mr. George Roster, a faultless, seamless debut on the podcast. Well done, Georgie. 
Cheers. It's been good to come back after the phone in six years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you back, my friend. And uh, yeah, keep up those the, the player ratings because I'm personally absolutely loving them. And uh, the numbers suggest that the fan base is as well. I've been Jack Collins. This has been the Fulhamish podcast. We'll be back on Thursday for the Thursday Club. Looking forward to that derby against Chelsea at the weekend. 12.30 at the Cottage. It's going to be a firecracker. Thank you for listening as ever. Take it easy. You whites. Come on, you whites.